Hey, fanboys and fangirls, it's Aaron Roverman. Uh, just uh, need to introduce the episode that you're about to hear. It was three hours, so we split it into three parts. The first part is Kevin Boyd. He is right now the Fan Expo Comics Coordinator. And uh, we cover his, his early life, but we also cover something that was pretty seminal to uh, the comic book scene and comics development in Toronto, the Paradise Comic Con. Now, this was a con uh, that happened. Uh, it was it was independent from Fan Expo, but I'll let him tell you all about it. And uh, I'll see you back here for the next part. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. With me today is someone pretty integral to Toronto's comic book scene, and I don't think he meant to be when he first started out. But he is Kevin Boyd, currently the comics coordinator for Fan Expo Canada, which is the biggest comic convention in Canada, just behind San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con in terms of size for comic conventions. He also runs the Comic Book Lounge and Gallery, which used to be a comic book shop in Little Italy in Toronto, but now is a comic subscription service. And he also does convention appearances to sell comics and merchandise and those sorts of things. So welcome, Kevin. Well, thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. I, I'm, I'm glad to have you in. You're an integral cog to the Toronto scene, as far as I'm concerned. And as you're right, I'm, I didn't intend to be. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's kind of happened that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I know you a fair bit, because I used to be one of your regular customers, mm-hmm. but I don't know you how you started, or like you know, all the background and how you started collecting comics and that sort of thing. So I'm really honored to have you in. I just want to start at the beginning. Like where, where did you grow up? Well, I I was born in North York. Okay. Grew up just around Avenue Road and Wilson. That was where we originally lived. And we lived around Eglinton and Young for a while and so forth. We went to Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver for four years when I was a child and then moved back in 77, just in time for me to see Star Wars and have my mind blown. Wow. Yeah. Our first guest, like Joe Kilmartin, who used to be the manager of the Comic Book Lounge Gallery, was also had his mind blown by Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So that's a connection that you two have, and you know Joe really well. Oh, yeah. You grew up and came back to Toronto just in time for Star Wars. When did you start getting into comics? Well, I started reading from comics, actually. That's where I learned how to read. Uh-huh. So I started reading around three, three and a half years old, So which is... A little on the young side for kids. Your parents introduced you to them? Uh, I have an older brother. Okay. So he's four years older. So he had a small stack of comic books in the house. And I just started picking them up and looking at them. And I started asking them for, like asking my parents for them when we were out shopping. And at that point, comics were a little bit more for for kids, I think, than they they are now. 
as far as, you know, Marvel and DC comics are going. And, you know, just started reading them. So I started sounding out the words and mispronouncing everything like crazy and uh, learned all sorts of crazy five-syllable words and uh, had no idea what they meant or... Like Excelsior and those sorts of things? Yeah, like Excelsior or Melancholic, (laughs) which I used to call Melancholic. Oh, nice, nice. So I think uh, one of my grandparents uh, didn't quite understand. She thought I was speaking an alien language because I learned to speak from reading. Cool. Phonetically. So just kind of fun. And and so Spider-Man and Batman have been my characters pretty much since I was about three and a half, four years old. So. Wow. I guess as a three-year-old, it just registers like the bright colors, you well, know, words I used words to watch the Batman TV series on repeats on television. Oh, the 1966 yeah. one, Adam West yeah. and stuff. Cool. At that point, like Super Friends was on television and they were running reruns of the 60s cartoons of Spider-Man and Superman and Batman and so forth. So I was inundated with superheroes and as a child. What is it about Spider-Man and Batman in particular that you think struck a chord with you? Well, I think Batman from television and okay. probably Spider-Man from television as well, because I love the Spider-Man cartoon show. Okay. The, the 60s original one. 60s one. Yeah. Right? With the um, you know iconic theme song and uh, the endless swinging through cavernous cities. And And so I guess you come from an era which is now sort of considered like a campier era of superheroes. Yeah, I would say, I mean, uh, certainly the Marvel comics at the time were not campy. They played it straight. And that was that was one of the great things about comics at the time was that they did. They weren't dumbed down for kids. Okay, they were action adventures, serial soap operas. And a lot of it was uh, designed with the the idea that your audience was going to be regular ter- regularly turning over and would be between the ages of six and fifteen. So then, once you started, you know, learning how to read from comics and those sorts of things, when did you start to become like a serious collector? You know, my my interest in comics coincided with the rise of comic shops. Okay. So up until that point, there were used bookstores where you could go and hunt down back issues and things like that. But you start to see, um, you know, the Silver Snow pops up in Toronto and Dragon Lady. Uh, and I used to go down to those. I used to hop on the subway. You know, here I am, eight years old. Eight-year-olds don't do that anymore. Yeah. But, but at that point, my parents would say, here, go take a bus ticket and do whatever you want. So my friends and I would go hop on the uh, the Young Street subway line, go down to Queen Street, and go to the Silver Snail and buy our comics or Dragon Lady. And there were a bunch of stars all in the same area on Queen Street. <laughs> What were the stores like back then? Not too different from the way they are now. I mean, you'd have racks of comic books and a lot more back issue bins. So less less on the paraphernalia, less the toys and pop vinyls and things like that that you would see now in, sh- in shops, but lots of back issues. Were they more like, I guess, your traditional comic shop in the sense of like more dusty, musty kind of what people used to say was like the stereotype of comic shops with like the sort of dungeon atmosphere? Pretty much, yeah. Like Dragon Lady on College Street was very much like an old school comic shop. It was, you know, you'd have your rows and rows of bins of magazines and comics collecting dust. And uh, you'd have on the walls, you'd have collections of more valuable issues. So Mm. you'd have, you know, your Golden Age comics and your Silver Age comics would be on the wall with higher prices. And uh, so we go in and you'd start reading, let's say, if I was reading Amazing Spider-Man and I'm collecting Amazing Spider-Man. So I go in and hunt for back issues and hit three or four different shops and I would have an allowance of like maybe $10 a week or something like that to spend on comics. Were comics relatively cheap back then? Very much so, yeah. Lots of lots of 25 cent comics or 
you know, five for a buck, 10 for a buck in some cases. They were they were considered collectible, but a lot of them didn't have the value because they were in such plentiful supply. Even the ones that you might consider key issues? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you could theoretically find like a really important issue in like a back issue yeah, bin? Yeah, you could go into the back issue bin. You might find a Silver Age comic like uh, Amazing Spider-Man 40 or 41 or 42. You might find that in the bins for five or $10. That's awesome. Did Silver Snail, like it was a different, was it a different location back then? Did they have their mural and, and stuff uh, like that? Because I remember their Queen Street location where they had like the painted yep. mural before they moved to Young and Dundas, recent, which happened relatively recently. I think they were originally just a little bit east of where that location was. Okay. I remember when they moved into that spot where they were for the longest time with the mural on the wall and so forth. But they didn't have that originally. The whole front was redone at one point. But it used to be this big, long store with just rows and rows of bins. Cool. And like a lot of people that went on to be heavily involved in comics or worked in comics, like artists and that sort of thing, they they worked at the Silver Snail over the years. Quite a few people did. Yeah, like Kalman and uh, my friend Sarah Young and uh, Willow Dawson. Mm -hmm. I knew Mark Asquith. Well, Mark, yeah, Mark ran the snail when I was shopping there. So, oh, cool. so I remember going down and meeting um, Bill Sienkiewicz and Dave Sim and Matt Wagner. I had a, an amazing afternoon talking to Matt Wagner down at the snail. That's awesome. Yeah. For you, did you did did they have the sort of Wednesday congregation thing where like the new comics yeah, would come out much. on Wednesday and you? I think they used to be Fridays. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the days changed every so often until it finally settled on Wednesday. Okay. Cool. So how did you feel about the rise of the comic shop? Like, did you, were you aware of the change from like the sort of Seven Elevens and those sorts of things to like the comic shop, or did it just sort of happen and? No, I became very aware of it. I mean, okay. as soon as I started, I used to go, whenever I'd go to a city, visit a relative mm-hmm. or something like that, I would pull out the yellow pages and I'd start hunting down the used bookstores. Oh, nice. And I'd say, okay, what does this town have as far as used bookstores and comic book stores and things like that? So I remember going to London, Ontario, and they didn't have any comic shops at the time. Mm-hmm. So going down to their used bookstores and so forth. And then eventually when I went to school there, I found there were three or four comic shops, but they were a little bit more remote. And did it make it easier as a consumer to shop at comic shops? Well, yeah, uh, of Did course, you yeah. feel like our community has, ar- has arrived sort of thing? Or? Uh, you know what? I'm not sure if there was a sense of community at that point, but okay. it definitely was a sense of... One-stop shopping. Okay. Because we were all hunting for back issues and and reading and consuming as much comic material as we could find. Mm -hmm. A place like the Silver Snail or Dragon Lady or or, um, I'm trying to think the place I went to up by Young and Lawrence. Before Paradise, there was a place called um, Foundation Uh, Comics. Foundation Comics. Yeah. And then they were replaced by Phoenix Comics shortly Uh, afterwards. Oh, okay. But, you know, you go in there and you, you and your friends would, like, we'd all go after school and there would be five or six of us. I went to De La Salle downtown at, on um, Avenue Road. Paint a picture of like what was going on in comics at, at the time. Like what were the key books? Like what was coming out? What were you collecting? Well, I um, think there was, with the rise of the comic shops were more direct sales material. Okay. So you started to see uh, comics like Moon Knight by Bill Sienkiewicz and Doug Minch. Oh, nice. And you see, um, you know, Micronauts and... Uh, you know, a more adult material. Okay. Right? And so DC starts to do these miniseries, and then Marvel starts to do these miniseries, like Camelot 3000. This is like late 70s, 80s? It's like 82, oh, 83, okay. yeah. Okay. okay, cool. And that's when I think I went to my first comic shop in 70, 78, but I started doing the weekly run in 81. Okay. 
up until that point, I remember going in and buying Marvel Fanfare number one, which was a big deal at the time. It was like on slick paper. It looked completely different. Mm-hmm. It's like, it was like a real thing, like the com- the rise of the comic shops and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When was your first convention? My first convention probably would have been one of the Dragon Lady conventions, which was in the basement of the Hilton Okay, at Richmond and University. Mm-hmm. So they used to have these pretty regularly. I think there's a steakhouse now where the spot is that okay. they used to hold them. But they would have two or three artists in, and uh, we would all go hunting for back issues. And when I was in high school, my friends and I actually formed our own comic book company. So we made comics. Oh. And so I I had a comic called The Cat, and I used to write and draw it, and we used to photocopy it. And uh, we used to get tables at conventions, like like Artist Alley's now. Wow. So what you do with Comic Book Lounge and Gallery when you go to conventions, you were doing when you were like a when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But uh, more more like selling, more like an Artist Alley thing. What was the idea behind your company? Like, what was it called? Uh, It was called Blacklight Comics. And it was myself, a fellow named Otino Corsano, who's a teacher at OCAD right now. Okay. Uh, another fellow named Rafael Alvarez, who's a like a storyboard artist now for um, not for Novana, but some other animation companies in town. But, okay. But we we had th- three books, and we would help pencil and ink each other's books. And uh, my father had a photocopier at his office, so we used to go down and photocopy it and cut the paper and staple it together. And, you know, it wasn't like we could go down to a printer and have it done. Yeah, super, like, DIY kind of, like how people used to do, like, flyers for concerts and stuff. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe I was 14, 15 at the time. We would do these tables at conventions, and people come and say, can you draw this for me? And so eventually we got into saying, okay, I need, like, Crisis on Infinite Earths number six. Can you give me that? And I'll give you a sketch in exchange for that. Oh. Yeah, so it was kind of like they did the work for me. Ah, uh, yeah. okay, okay. So so you, like, bartered yeah. for, like, their work and the comics and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. And the idea behind the company for you was, like, I read these, like, I want to start making them? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. And, like, I want to be involved yeah, I want to make comics. Yeah. I want to get in on that side. Yeah, and yeah. Um, while I was in university, I tried to get back to it. And so I did an updated version of my high school comic. So he, uh, it kind of looked like a, a bit like Spawn, actually. Uh-huh. Like sort of big eyes, Spider-Man eyes. And nice. he had uh, kind of spiky ears and he wore a helmet and he had a sword and... What was yeah. the what was the origin story? Do you remember? The premise was is that uh, there's a, a cat spirit that's reincarnated nine times. In the case of... The third or fourth incarnation, it gets bound to the soul of like a an English warrior in the 14th century. Oh, uh, okay, right? cool. And then he gets reborn in the 20th century, and then the cat spirit bonds with him again. Wow, that is sort of like Spawn. A bit like the it, hell spawns are like born throughout history and that yeah. kind of thing. But this is yeah. like way before. Yeah, this would have been 86, 87. So uh, I'm like, I wasn't influenced by Todd in that case. And I don't think Todd was influenced by me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like so. parallel ideas. It's, it's kind of funny how that, that yeah. comes together. Did you draw, like, were you a really good artist or did uh, you do most of the writing and stuff? I, you know what? I wrote and drew my own comic. Okay. And um, you know what? I wouldn't say I was very good. <laughs> okay. I was okay. okay. I, I took art in high school and I, you know, I have a few pieces of my, uh, my, artwork hanging around the apartment which is kind of you know there are a few things i like from that era but when i was doing my undergrad i just didn't have the time to draw anything so it just kind of fell out of habit what did you go to school for uh for history and english okay and where did you go i went to western 
And I did two years at King's College in Western, and I was bored out of my skull, so I moved back to Toronto. There's just too much to do in Toronto and not much to do in London. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so as you got older, how did you start to get into the business of comics? As a comics fan and a reader and a collector, you start amassing back issues. Okay. And they accumulate pretty quickly. So I went from having maybe three long boxes as a kid to six to 10 to 20 to 30. And then my parents are starting to notice I've got a lot of comics. And are you, are, do you really read all of those? Do you need them? And, and I started thinking, well, you know what? Maybe I could start selling some of my comics that I don't want anymore. And that way I can spend the money on buying the ones that I do want. Okay. And that's been my principle all along with what I do with comics. Yes, or and pay for the things that I want to buy in comics. Okay. So I, I used to set up at local conventions. So I went from being an artist alley guy to being one of the dealers. Okay. So I started out with a half table and I'd bring three or four long boxes down, sell what I could, maybe buy a few back issues around the room and went from just sort of went from there, bought a few collections. And back then the comic convention atmosphere was much more like swap meet, right? Like where you yeah, pretty you're much. just trading comics and it's cheaper. Like the price of getting a table is much cheaper and that kind yeah, of I thing, think right? I, the the price of a table was like ten bucks or something okay. like that and twenty five for a full table mm-hmm. and it's it's since gone up, but not a lot actually. You know, in the twenty years, it's gone from maybe twenty five dollars for a table to like a hundred dollars for a table. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. okay. So it's still not that much, mm-hmm. and still not that different from the current one day show type of thing, where you just have dealer tables and people with long boxes of comics. And yeah, and it's more about yeah. comics in the shorter show. Yeah, uh, in the shorter shows, it's just that the larger conventions with the celebrities and all that other stuff get more attention and more more media and that yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you started selling your own comics just so you could buy more comics. Yeah. Did that become like a, you know, I'm going to do this every year? Like, what was it like um, a real business for you eventually? No, it wasn't. It was, it was definitely a hobby business. Okay. It was something on the side. Okay. You know, I, I started shopping at Paradise Comics around 91, 92. Okay. So I became very good friends with the guys that work there. Like, uh, there's a fellow named Simon Watson and another fellow named Doug who still works there. Okay. And Peter sort of came in later. I, the, he bought the store from another fellow named Chris. Okay. So is this like Doug Simpson? Yeah. Okay. So Doug Simpson and Peter Dixon, who, like Peter is the current owner of Paradise, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think we're going to circle back to that eventually. So you you became friends with them. That that became like your regular shop? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I bought my comics every week from them. Okay. I think I'm customer number one. In their oh really? Database. Like they they opened and you were the I was pretty close, yeah. I, or I started early on with a subscription, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know the story of their opening? Like how, did they just sort of appear and you're um, like You know what? I I ran into Simon who worked there. Okay. And he used to work for me when I worked at Center Island. I used to run the rides at Center Island, which is an amusement park. Just in, in Toronto Harbor. Oh, okay. Right? So I used to work uh, the flume, the log flume. So, uh, oh, So Simon worked for me, and he said one day, he says, you should come down. I'm working now at a comic shop. Okay. You should come check this out. And I lived at Young and Shepherd, and Young and Lawrence would be on my way home from work. So I stopped in to check Where it were out. you working? At that time, I was working at uh, Princess Margaret Hospital in research. Okay. Funny enough, that's what I still do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is in like what year? This would be like early nineties, like ninety one, maybe. Okay. 91, 91 okay. 92, something like that. Okay. In terms of like your your day job, you mm-hmm. got into like research or hospital. Yeah, I. I uh, it's funny when I worked at Center Island, I broke my jaw. Okay. Okay, and while I broke my jaw, my aunt was working a research job, and she said, "You know what? You should come work for me." 
on my research study. Okay. So I went down and I took a part-time job just doing, you know, office work. And at the time, it was still like Stone Age office work. It was like everything was on file cards and... They had, like, paper files for everything. You were like the Harvey Picar of the hospital. Kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but for, for this one diet study. So, it was a diet and breast cancer prevention study. Okay. So, I, I handled all of their correspondence. So, I'd send out letters and I'd tape up the envelopes and send everything out. And then they had me do recruitment and it just sort of built up from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it became, like, went from like a, oh, I'll do this for a little while till I'll do this. I'm yeah, it suddenly became again. a career, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so now I, I'm like data management. So I oversee data collection for various studies and okay. prepare reports. So that means that like when they do research, you're the one who collates everything and like all the results and all that sort of stuff? Uh, what I work on are, are uh, cancer studies where patients have consented to allow us to look at medical records. Mm-hmm. So then I'll look at their medical records. And because of the way Ontario and hospitals collect data, you can't transfer data. Okay. From one source to another. It's all in one area. Isn't it eventually supposed to go like digital? Well, it's funny. It is digital, but like I can't go in and cut and paste stuff uh, and okay. put it into another database. Okay. I have to look at it and say, okay, this patient was here at this date and then they went to this visit uh, and they had okay. these things done. So I spent a lot of time building the story of a person's history. For like your hospital? Or, yeah. Okay. It's within my hospital, but it's for like our investigators database. Yeah. And you ha- right. and then you sort of have to do that like over and over and over again. Yeah. For oh, like thousands okay. of people. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you break your jaw when you were working at Center Island? Uh, I was playing baseball. Okay. And I was pitching and my, my younger brother, luckily enough or unluckily enough, was hitting. Okay. So he hit a home run, but my face got in the way. Oh, so it's and I got my glove up, but it slammed in and broke the jaw in two spots. Oh, did it yeah. still go over the wall? No, it's my glove stopped it, in, and my head was right behind the glove. Oh, so. he must have hated you because you you screwed up his home run. No, I did. think he was more uh, paralyzed I, by how to, by the fact that you broke your jaw. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was like he hit it, and I I heard a ringing and a pop. I looked at him and I said, Steve, I think you broke my jaw. And then I leaned forward and all this blood started coming out. Oh, man, yeah. crazy. So yeah. so that's how you sort of fell into your job. Yeah. So then you're working at Center Island and, you know, your friend says, like, come to the, the comic shop that we opened. Yeah. So you go there yeah. and what were, your first, what were your first impressions? It was tiny. It wasn't the current location of Paradise Comics, which is... It's small, Near but there, not wasn't huge. It? Like, yeah. It's Lawrence and Young right now. Yeah, it was like across the street and a little bit north okay. of where it currently is. Okay. So someone took a, an old jewelry store. So it was long and narrow, and it had a big room at the back, almost like a question mark kind okay. of thing. You go in, and there there would be a couple of posters in the front hall, and then you open up, and there's a room at the back, and they would have some new issues and some graphic novels. They hardly had anything there. Okay. But they did have old comics. Okay. So the owner, Chris Friesen, who works for CGC now, he's their restoration expert. Yeah, yeah. That's where you slab your comics, and they're worth way more because you can verify their condition, like sight unseen yeah. type it of thing. It makes them easier to sell for yeah. the most part. Yeah. Because your buyer knows exactly what they're getting. Mm-hmm. But you can never read them again because they're... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could read them again, but it's a little bit of a hassle to open them up yeah. and cut them out. Yeah, yeah. You know, Chris was a back issue guy, so he had he had good Silver Age comics, which is what I was looking for. Obviously, I was a Spider-Man collector looking to fill holes in my run, and I was collecting Cerebus the Aardvark and a few other books at the time, so... I was always on the hunt for certain things. So. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. So do you almost have like a complete collection of, of Spider-Man then? or I actually had a f- complete collection of Spider-Man okay. and then I sold it. Oh, okay. Because sometimes when you when you do something and you achieve that goal, you're like, what do I do now? Uh, that was my whole goal for my first 10 years of collecting. 
now I just want to be able to read them. So I'm happy to have like Marvel Masterworks or a hardcover or something like that. Nice. Yeah. So when you had like the first few issues of Spider-Man, like Amazing Fantasy and Spider-Man number one, mm-hmm. how much were they worth? You know, I never did get an AF-15. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was my so only experience. But funny enough, there's a newspaper article from the Toronto Sun okay. from like the late 70s. And they interviewed a bunch of kids and they said, it was like whatever grade I was in, it was like grade six or something like that. Okay. And they said, what do you want for Christmas? And so all these kids are like, I'd like this toy, I'd like that one. And I said, I want an Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man. <laughs> and they put it in big quotes on the newspaper on the page. Wow. So like, I, Somebody could have <laughs> saw that and, and tried to make that happen for you. Yeah, well, no one did. But nobody unfortunately, did. Yeah. Oh. But my Spider-Man one, it was a low-grade copy. It was really nice. It had a little water damage on the front. Okay. Uh, which was why it was such a low-grade copy. And I bought it for 1000 and then I had it for a while, and then I got Stan Lee to sign it, and I CGC'd it. Okay. And then I think I sold it for 2000 uh, And when did you get that? When did you get Spider-Man 1? I bought it in 94 or 95. Okay. So it was one of those things that I bought on consignment. So I paid Peter, well, Chris and then Peter, uh, like $50 a week. Okay. And, and then gradually paid it off over the course of six months. Nice, nice. Yeah. So how much is that worth now? Now that copy might be worth five or six thousand dollars. Okay, but this low grade still doesn't go up that much. So, oh, okay. but yeah, but still, it was a Spider-Man one. Which yeah, and Stan cool. Lee signed it. Yeah, what was that like for you? You know, Stan was always fun to to see. I still see Stan every so often. Yeah, he's there's on Stan and there's off Stan. On Stan is, you know, that guy with the same stories and yeah. that sort of stuff. And he makes right? you feel like you're the most important, important person. person. Yeah, yeah. yeah but definitely. then there's other Stan who's like, where's my milkshake? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm really tired. I want to go home. Yeah. yeah. He reverts to the age that he that he is. Yeah. I didn't start meeting the big people until I started going mm-hmm. to conventions, mm-hmm. which is when I like when I moved to Toronto for school in 2003, I was collecting comics, but there was no real scene in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I didn't even meet Stan until two or three years ago mm-hmm. when he came to Fan Expo those last two times yep. that he was there. But my first show was the Paradise Comics show. Yeah. So I want to get to how you went from like a customer of Paradise Comics and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff to like, how did you start a convention with them? Well, I, they had always been doing one-day shows. Okay. Right. So, and I usually set up at those one-day shows. Peter would travel and do shows in Chicago and Pittsburgh and places like that. He'd be looking for people to just come along who mm-hmm. want to go to the show and who could help lift boxes and stuff like that. Yeah. He's and, selling his own stuff from the shop. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as a friend and a customer, you'd say, hey, Kev, you want to go to Pittsburgh? And I'd be like, sure, who's going to be there? What guests are there? So I'd check it out. I'd look on the line and stuff like that. Or I'd look at the flyer that he'd have. And I'd say, you know what? I'll come along with you. Sure. He pays the gas. Mm-hmm. So it's no cost for me to go down. He's covering the hotel because I'm helping him out at the booth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I get to go and I get to meet George Perez or whoever's the guest at the show at the time. Nice. So I just started doing that more and more with him. So we traveled to all sorts of different shows. We actually became friends with CGC as they were just starting out. Okay. And they weren't the big thing that they are now. Yeah. They were just like, hey, we've got this idea for grading and we have an idea for the signature thing. So Peter and I helped the develop help them develop their signature series program. And that's when someone is signing a book, they witness it and then immediately 
CGC it. Yeah, so it goes to Florida right after it gets signed, and then it comes back with a like a custom label saying it was signed at Pittsburgh Comic Con. On- and that's a good thing for fans because you can immediately verify that it was actually signed, and there's yep. no fraud with the signature and exactly. that kind of thing. Because the problem, I guess, with books that no one witnesses is you never know did they actually sign the book even if yeah exactly you, know, you were there unless you can provide like a photo or something or something like yeah. that right well they won't go by photos as well so they, oh, okay so it has to be uh seen by someone that they've authorized mm-hmm. so we helped develop that program we and we would go to conventions and we'd, we'd run that out of their booth okay and peter was like you know what it's really too bad our one big show in in town and and you know fan expo was was a great show it was a different name at that point what was it called it was called the great canadian comic book expo at that time okay and it was just like a small show or yeah it was big it was was it was our big show but it just actually i think there was no great i don't know why we kept thinking great but it was the canadian comic book expo and then they added the canadian sci-fi expo and then anime expo and so forth and expanded it became bigger and bigger. So it was a but it was a bunch of different smaller shows that they collected, stitched together, yeah, into one big show. It was like, like it, is uh, now. it would be like okay, we're going to add anime. So they would just say the Canadian Anime Expo would be launching this year, okay. and it was really just the same show but yeah. with a different division, and uh, he okay. would appeal to that fandom mm-hmm. and would say, okay, the comics fandom want to be advertised to you this way. The sci-fi fandom want to be advertised this way mm-hmm. with different flyers and different types of guests. And then they would say anime would need this. Later on, they teamed up with Rumorg for horror. And it just kept getting bigger. It just bigger. kept getting bigger. And then it became like less about the separate shows and separate divisions that they were putting on. And then it became like one big show yeah. with, with a bunch of different sections. Which right? is why they renamed to Fan Expo. Uh, because it wasn't just about comics or anime anymore. It was about everything. Yeah, it was like uniting fandom under one roof. Okay. And so... Um, we wanted more classic guests and fan expo's mandate has always been and still is that they want the biggest and the best comic book creators working in the industry now so peter and i would be like well we want silver age guys we want guys that aren't necessarily working on new comics and other people did too yeah <laughs> yeah exactly okay. which is where which is where we went with the first paradise show as we said okay we should do something where we bring in like the Paul Gulacy's and the Steve Rudes and the Marshall Rogers and those guys who haven't been here in a long time who aren't on the list for Fan Expo on their radar because they want the guy that's drawing Spider-Man now, not the guy that was drawing Spider-Man then. Mm-hmm. And we want the guy that was drawing Spider-Man then. So that was our original goal. And so I started inviting people and then uh, it just sort of went from there. Because you already knew them from your connections with the Signature Series and going to shows. And yeah, meeting them at conventions people, and stuff. They trusted you because you were m- managing the Signature Series booth? Like they knew you were like legit? Yeah, not so much. I think oh. it was more like I just sent off an email and said, hey, do you want to come to Toronto for a show? And most of them were like, oh, I haven't been invited to Toronto in a long time. I love Toronto. Sure, I'd like to come up. Oh, okay. So they didn't really care who you were. They were just like, okay. Like, it wasn't like a, who are you? Like, why are you talking to me kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. It was like, a okay. like As long as you're legit, you have the money to do it, and you're going to fly me up and put me up in a hotel, they were happy. Okay. So when you're doing that kind of thing, what is your responsibility? If you want to start a convention, Mm -hmm. what do you have to do? Well, obviously, you have to work out a facility. You have to find a location to do it. And you have to start selling dealer tables first. So if you don't have dealer tables sold, then you have no money to work with. 
Okay. So you want to start selling as much. And so a bigger hall allows you to sell more tables. You make connections. Obviously, Peter had a lot of connections with other dealers. So he would go to Walton Hamilton and say, hey, would you like to come and set up at my show? And Walt would say, yeah, I want six booths. So there's like a few thousand dollars in the bank. That helps us pay for the facility. And once we paid for the facility, the other money we raise helps to pay for the guests. Okay. It goes from there. And what you're providing for the guests with that money is accommodation, yeah, plane would, tickets? Like, what it, are you... It would vary for the guests, right? Okay. So, if, if they're in driving distance, they might drive in and we'll re- reimburse them for their gas. And uh, we'll definitely put them up for a hotel and uh, make sure they're looked after over the weekend. So, you know, we'll provide them with food at the show, food like water and drinks and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then in some cases, we might go take some people out for dinner or provide them with a per diem so they can go and eat dinner. And I remember the first part of the show was like November 2003. Yeah. And there was, it was like Howard Chaikin and Jerry Robinson, like the creator of the Joker was there. There was, there was some current people. There was like Pia Guerra from like Why the Last Man. Yeah. Steve McNiven was there. And Steve McNiven. I think we had Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor. Yeah. We had, it was a good guest list. Jim Starlin was there. Yeah, Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin drew me a Miracle Man. Uh, yeah, he drew me a Miracle Man off of the cover that he did of mm-hmm. one of the issues of Miracle Man because he didn't remember how to draw a Miracle Man because cool. he hadn't been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was an interesting mix of like Silver Age people, like you were saying. So you mm-hmm. obviously fulfilled your your mandate pretty pretty good, mm-hmm. and then you had like a few modern people but the thing that people said about about paradise you know because i that's where i met everybody from artist alley that i still know like people like tyrone Mm -hmm. and matthew muhammad and you know uh, andy melanger like those people Mm -hmm. that's where i met them first and what they said was like it's a good show because you can get close to the people that you admire and you can talk to them yeah. usually for longer than the average show yeah. would allow you to talk to them. And it had a more, I guess, casual atmosphere that everyone was sort of there together. And like, I remember I hung out next to Phil Jimenez while he mm-hmm. was signing books and just talked to him yeah. basically for most of the show. And I ended up getting his, his email address off of that and yeah. we, we became friends and stuff. But, like, I'd never experienced that before. I was totally expecting the lineup, one autograph, like, yeah. two-minute conversation, how it usually goes with, like, yeah. celebrity signings. How were you able to cultivate such a casual atmosphere? Well, I look back on it, and I would say it was probably because our attendance was low. Okay. The first convention we did it was on like the coldest November weekend you could possibly imagine, and there was no heat in the building. Yeah, it was at the CNE, like the CNE yeah. grounds, right? In the in the um, uh, Queen Elizabeth building, mm-hmm. and so the heaters had broken down, so we were all freezing. We were all bundled up, and mm-hmm. but everybody had fun with it, and the guests were all available, and and they, they just sort of developed a camaraderie. Mm-hmm. But nobody was really getting the sales that they wanted, right? So the dealers were not making that much money. The guests weren't making a huge amount of money from doing sketches and things like that. But they like talking to people. Mm-hmm. If you're an artist alley, and so maybe you're not that busy at your artist alley table, but I can go and hang out with Jim Starlin and get tips and he mm-hmm. can critique my artwork and things like that. So it, it became more like a community thing. Okay. It was like a happy accident. Okay. From a convention organizer's point of view, we we're always disappointed because we weren't ever really making money doing mm-hmm. it, right? Okay. So the first one, we lost a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? So in the second one, when we had Will Eisner back, 
Mm-hmm. That was a little bit different and, and it was a lot of fun. We we didn't increase our attendance that much, but the weather was nicer, so people hung out more. And that was in the more. summer. Yeah. And I remember I wanted to go, but I couldn't go because at that point I was in university, li- uh, living okay. in residence and stuff. So when residence closes, you got to go back home. So I had yeah. to go back to BC every summer. So like the fall was great because I could actually go, but then yeah. in the summer I couldn't go. And I think Will Eisner died like the next year. Yeah, he died around Christmas that yeah. same year. Yeah. yeah. That was very sad because he was awesome i mean I, I, like when i say awesome i'm not putting it down he was like everybody's favorite grandfather mm-hmm. he was so accessible so great to talk to had a great advice for everybody and he'd written us a couple of letters just to say how much fun he had something that we could put up on our website and then he went in for surgery and then complications and was was gone oh, man. so it went really quick so we were all very saddened by that. And, and and it was, you know, we were so blessed to have him that one time. It was pretty amazing. How did you get him? Did you just... You know, it was funny. My friend Walter just said to me, he said, you know, you should have Will Eisner. And I said, sure, I'd love Will Eisner. So he says, here's his phone number. So I called him and he said, okay, I'm interested. How did your friend Walter have... have... Uh, he worked at what, what I guess, I think it still was called BMV at that time. But he worked there selling used books. Yeah. He was really into the underground cartoonists. Okay. And corresponded with a lot of people. Like, like he Robert was, Crumb and those people? Yeah. Okay. But he was really good friends with Howard Chaikin. Okay. And uh, Chaikin, I guess, had sold him some stuff of Eisner's mm. or something like that. So he contacted uh, Eisner's wife, Anne, to verify if it was legitimate stuff. Mm. And she said yes, and then they started a correspondence. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then they became friends from the correspondence. Yeah. yeah. The Pretty Show had guests that no one else had or no one else was bringing in that I remember. Yeah. At the time, my my Toronto comic community experience was, like, super limited. I wasn't expecting to see, like, huge people like that at the first convention that well, I Well, and that was our thing. Uh, Fan Expo wasn't trying to get those people. Yeah. And we figured if they're not going to try, and we asked them to, we went and said, like, would you be interested? and getting some of these people and and their response was no we, we're gonna do it our way and we're bringing the people that we want to bring but thanks for the suggestion oh, okay right so uh, and they were about current hip yeah people of now exactly okay yeah okay. so they started to change of course when we went in a different direction they started then inviting a few more classic guests and things like that so yeah th- that's the thing that i kind of want to get to is like <laughs> it became super competitive and predatory right like you were you said that you were losing money like behind the scenes like it wasn't success like was it successful like how would you how would you evaluate the paradise i would say it was a, a success as an experience okay but as a as a financial entity i would say it was not successful okay thankfully uh it was a lot of my time but it wasn't my money okay I, I put a lot of hours in working on things, booking guests, working on programming, working on seating plans, working on guest relations, all that stuff. I never saw anything financially for doing it for five years. Okay. You know, I wasn't necessarily doing it to make money or get rich, but like all things I do, I do it so that I can get my comics for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I can't even make enough to pay for my weekly comics from that, and, and you know, I had a job that still paid my bills, but... And I was able to buy comics from there. But, you know, I want to buy artwork. I want to buy other things. So it just ended up getting to the point. The hobby job turned into work. Yeah. It wasn't enough. It wasn't a hobby. And it was a lot of stress. Stress like, how are we going to organize this? Oh, my God. Like the. And the fight. 
the whole thing that you alluded okay, to. Okay, so so yeah. let's let's get into that then. Yeah. And like, how did it work? Like, what was the stru- what was the structure? Like, were Peter and Doug like your boss, or were you all sort of equal? No, Peter or how and did I were partners. Partners. Okay. Yeah. And so Doug worked for Peter. Okay. So he he helped uh, do things for the show from the show the store point of view. So the fact that you weren't making money, no one was making like no one was making. Yeah, money. no one was making. Okay, money. so it wasn't like they were holding out on you or anything. They like they that. might be making money selling comics at their booth. Okay, but they weren't making money from the door of the show. Of the show. Yeah. Okay. So it was a labor of love, and um, so along comes Market Leader Fan Expo saying. We don't want you to do this. We don't want this show here. Who said that? The Fan Expo. Fan Expo. Yeah. Okay. So they're like, we don't like having competition. You know, although the competition is helping them be better, mm-hmm. the message was there are only so many guests out there and you're making it more difficult for me to get guests. To which I responded, but you didn't want these guests. Mm-hmm. And so we got them. And now you say you want them. Because you guys look successful? Or yeah, I guess we looked. He we was, looked success, more he, successful he than was we were. Af- he just said, um, I wouldn't say he was afraid, but he just said, basically, we launched bigger than he did. Okay. So he was concerned, that, and we and we were able to get the talent, was the other thing. Okay. So the yeah. fact that you had the talent, and the fact that you launched bigger, to him, would have been maybe a threat down the road. Yeah. Like, he thought that you would grow and eventually surpass, so he sort of wanted to nip it in the bud right away? I think that's the basics. Okay. Yeah. Well, and yeah. what's this guy's name? I was Amon Gupta. Oh, okay. Who's, okay. Who's my the boss. guy who runs yeah. Fan Expo. He's my current boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is funny. Which is funny. Yeah. Which is funny. And we'll, and, and we'll get to that for yeah, sure. Yeah. But at the time, you said it was stressful. And I remember, like, as a fan, like, I remember that they would schedule mini shows yeah. on the same weekend yeah. as your show to take fans away yeah. from your show so to go to to go to their show same right? weekend uh, they would schedule one day shows or the week before or they would confuse guests and say hey you know you're coming to Toronto Comic Con and the person would say okay great and they'd book the flight and then they start advertising them and I would be like you said you were coming to my show <laughs> uh, and you're on their, their guest list too do you not know that there are two shows and, because they were both they would call their show Toronto Comic Con yeah. wouldn't they and yeah. your show was called Toronto Comic Con. Yeah. So even your guests and the fans, from oh, a fan yeah. perspective, yeah. didn't know where they were going. I looked into it with a lawyer and they said, listen, you know what? You can't really protect Toronto Comic Con. The only thing you can do is tie it in with your corporate identity. And that's where it became the Paradise Toronto Comic Con. So You had Pete- to change the name in order to make it distinctive. Yeah. Okay. So since Peter had the shop and uh, he was the touchstone for the for the event, it became the Paradise Toronto Comic Con. Okay. Which uh, upset a few dealers like Silver Snail. They didn't really want to support the show because... Because that store is competitive with them, right? Exactly. Okay. So even though we're all... Actually, the Toronto dealers are, and stores are pretty friendly to one another. Okay. But they, the owner didn't feel that he wanted to advertise for another store. Okay, yeah. So when we did posters for his store, we had to drop Paradise from the, the name. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. okay. So, so, which led to the same problem, right? Then you're yeah. at his store, it's advertised as like Comic-Con, yeah. right? And Fan Expo is still calling their little mini show Comic-Con, yes. Toronto Comic-Con. Yeah. So it, it didn't, it sort of eliminated part of it, but not really. Yeah. So it didn't help. And then I started to meet with Amon, the owner, at shows. So we would spend hours going at it. At shows like San Diego. So we go out for lunch and we go out at for hours fighting over, but you said this and I said this and can't we stop this and can't we make things better? Mm-hmm. And Peter didn't like him, wouldn't meet with him at all. Mm-hmm. We eventually came to some agreements. Okay, and what were they? 
just timing, you know, like we're si- we're going to be six months away from your big show. We'll stay away from Jim Lee, but we want we want to go after Stanley. Okay, you know that type of thing. So, yeah. so less about the big hip current modern artists, mm-hmm. more about the classic guys, which you always were and always wanted to be anyway. Yeah, as well as indie guys, indie indie creators that he just doesn't care about. Okay, like so, like the Dave Sims and yeah. Those people. And we had become very good friends with Dave Sim at that point. Mm-hmm. He'd come to a couple, he had gone to a couple of our shows and so forth. Now, eventually we reached a point where we sat down and, and had worked out a deal where we were going to take over Toronto Comic-Con. Okay. Uh, the His Toronto Comic-Con. So we would merge the shows. His one-day show would become a three-day show, similar to what we have now with, okay. the, with the Toronto Comic-Con in March. Yeah. We had it all worked out, and then um, the general feeling was that Peter didn't agree. Peter, he didn't like the idea, okay. so he wouldn't go for that. So, Like he didn't want to sleep with the enemy, so to speak. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah he didn't trust him. Uh, uh-huh. You know, my dealings with him on, uh, he's, he's always been very good with okay. his promises. If he, if he agrees to something and it's in writing, then he'll go through with it. Okay. If it's verbal, well, maybe maybe not. But Yeah, yeah. But, if, but if it's a contract, he'll do it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So... Then you leave to go work yeah. for Fan Expo, so right? I had, I had an interesting year where in the fall of 2006, I had an anaphylactic reaction to shrimp because I'm deadly allergic to shrimp. Wow, okay. And it put me in the ICU. It was right around Halloween, and so my eyes were all blood-fooled and everything. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And the whole experience wasn't cool. Yeah, but, <laughs> but the luck. But it definitely puts your life into a different perspective when you almost die. Yeah. You're like, what am I doing? Like. I'm I'm killing myself for something that I'm what am I I'm not getting any satisfaction out of this. Uh, I love doing the show and I love being part of it, but I'm not making any money from it and it's driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. And I have this whole fight with this other promoter, and that's driving me crazy. And I just I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. So I want so that was when we started meeting with him to say seriously, how can we make this peaceful? Mm-hmm. Right. And end all this stuff. Like I hate all that fighting. And, and I was a big part of all of it. I was in, I was fighting for our show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I hate the fact that, that the town is like this. Like why do we, we don't want Toronto to be like the war city. And I mean, at the time fans were mimicking the fight that you were having at the behind the scenes level. Like yeah. the feeling was, you know, you're a paradise person. You're a fan expo person. Like, yeah. You know, it's sort of pick a side, even among yeah. dealers, like which yeah. which show are you going to support? And, 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 and in some cases, people were asked to draw sides. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't ever ask anybody to draw sides because we were the small show. So yeah. you can't really do that. But, but I think Amon had said to a couple of people, hey, you know, if you want to continue being uh, a moneymaker at my events, why are you supporting this small event where you don't mm-hmm. make money? And I remember because I, I got involved mm-hmm. small small. I got involved because my I was shopping at a Harry Tranchula mm-hmm. back then because oh. uh, it was uh, a friend of mine from BC used to be roommates with Leon, the owner. Yeah. And that's how we got hooked up. And his shop happened to be across from Ryerson where it still is. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's where I was going to school. So we, we shopped together, but I think he like circulated and some sort of email mm-hmm. about like that that Amon had sent that he wasn't really supposed to probably circulate. Oh, okay. And informing people like what mm-hmm. was happening and yeah. and like you should be against this kind of thing. Yeah. And I think I wrote like a, a letter in agreement with, yeah. with him. And I think so, one of the artists, 
wrote back to me. I think it was Evan Van Scriver. Okay. And like didn't know who I was because my yeah. email address didn't have my name on it or whatever. And just was like on a mon side and totally oh, yeah, like chewed yeah. out me yeah. this fan who wasn't expecting like a response yeah but it became like a there were like petitions happening yeah and like different things were it was like it was crazy yeah and that was that uh, all around the same time i was like and and he had i think just before i had the shrimp thing that was this the year that we did a one-day show before fan expo mm-hmm. so we said if you like to do this how would you like it if we do it to you and he didn't like that at all yeah and he threatened uh, Daryl at Third Quadrant with being, supposedly with being kicked out. Okay, and Daryl, this is another uh, shop owner at the yeah. time. Yeah, so Daryl said, well, if you're going to threaten me, then I'm going to go with the side that isn't threatening me. Mm-hmm. So, and he uh, backed out of supporting Fan Expo. And a few people, I mean, Sean Ward wrote a letter and a few people wrote letters in, in support. It was it was really nice of them to do that. And, mm-hmm. okay, it's starting to get a little crazy because... In my mind, Fan Expo serves a purpose. So does the show that we're putting on. What is and the purpose is current uh, versus Silver Age. Or yeah, what? Okay. yeah, and, and people make money. I mean, these dealers are friends of mine, and and I want them to succeed. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to lose money or, or lose business as a result of fighting. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the artists. The artists all make money at both events. So why uh, why eliminate an opportunity for them? Mm-hmm. You know, now uh, unfortunately, because of what we were doing, uh, he cut Peter out of the show. Mm-hmm. And Peter was Peter lost a revenue stream as a, as a part of it because Peter was also doing Fan Expo. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Paradise used to set up. Yeah. So and it was okay so long as he didn't hand out flyers. And then I guess we talked to a dealer right next to the the table next to us, but we didn't give him any flyers or anything like that. And the guy complained to him on, and so it was all backstabbing oh, and stuff. So okay. it, was, it was not a good time. It was really oh, wow. nasty. It's like and Toronto negative. comic scene civil war. Basically. Yeah, very much. Yeah. At that point, I think we all realized by Christmas of that year that uh, we couldn't continue doing this for hmm. like on any side, fan expo side. I mean, they might say, Amon might say, yeah, I could have continued going fighting for a long time. That was not a problem. But we all wanted to settle it. We hmm. wanted this to be a peaceful situation. So they backed off. Hmm. They made an offer. We didn't accept it. But they said, you know what? We're not going to schedule anything against you this year. We're not going to do any shows in between like a week or two before or the same weekend and stuff like that. So you have your weekend to live and die on your own. Okay. We That 2007 show was really kind of the turning point for me. Uh, we had a big hailstorm on the Friday night. And what started off really well was dead by like eight o'clock because um, of the storm yeah. and then it never picked up that entire weekend and you had like people that have haven't come back like warren ellis and like the, those people in 2007 yeah. right uh no uh, 2007 we had matt wagner and marv wolfman and warren ellis was 2005 oh uh, okay yeah. okay and that was the year that I helped launch the Schuster Awards oh, okay. as well. So yeah, you well, you launched the Schuster Awards, which we'll get to yeah. after we finish uh, our discussion about this. Sure. But um, it's the hailstorm. Things are sort of coming to a head. Mm-hmm. Uh, take it from there. Again, I wasn't making much, and I was told that I was guaranteed to make a certain amount of money. Okay. So uh, the raid guys had done a big jam piece, this amazing piece of artwork, and so there was a silent auction, and I won the silent auction. And I said, okay, I'm going to use $500 of my money that I'm being promised to buy this piece of artwork. And then I went there and I was told that there was no money. And I was like, how could there be no money? 
like I knew how much money we had raised in table sales. I knew how much we did in admission. And even though the admission was never great, we were ahead. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. And I was told that we were not. And I had no access to the books at that point. So where's so, the money going? Which is probably that was a good question. Yeah, that was my big thing. So I, I went to Peter after and I said, okay, where's the money? And he said, listen, I had to spend it on hotels. I had to spend it on all these things. I said, listen, I keep a spreadsheet. I know how much money. Any, and he couldn't explain to me where it had all gone. Okay. My, my general feeling was that it was spent on other things with the intent of paying the show back. Oh, okay. And it just didn't work out that way. And then I thought, you know what? I I could fight this out or I could just walk away. Yeah. And I said to him, listen, I'm done. I'm not doing any more shows with you unless you promise me in writing that I'm going to get my share and you start paying me on, an, on a semi-regular basis. I, I can't do anything. Okay. I can't do any more work for the show. And he said, well, that's sad, but I understand. Okay. I think he just thought that I would keep coming back, okay. that I loved it that much. Okay. And I did like it. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And I didn't had been doing it for free basically mm -hmm. for five years. But, uh, I think after that experience in the fall, I was like, you know, I just can't keep killing myself mm -hmm. for goodwill. Mm -hmm. You know, goodwill is only going to take me so far when I have to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. The fan expo guys called me up and said, we'd like to talk to you about coming in. You know how we had made an offer to you to come in and have your show be part of it. Okay. If you're not going back. The offer will stand. You'll just split it with Tiziano or somebody else. Okay. And that was yeah. the former comics coordinator, Tiziano. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so basically it's like the ultimate respect uh, of a former adversary to be yeah. like, like they obviously liked how you handled things or how you were doing things and yep. stuff like that. And then they wanted you. Yeah. I mean, now maybe on another respect, it was a uh, one business owner saying, well, if I take this guy away, then they won't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. They still went ahead and did shows without me. So, mm -hmm. you know, that my general feeling was that was nice to be respected. And if I could, from my point of view, it was like, all these people had complained to me constantly about how they felt they were treated at Fan Expo. Mm -hmm. So my feeling was, they still do Fan Expo. They still make money. They still support it. If I could make that experience better for those people, for the professionals and for the fans, then that's a win for everybody. What were the problems? I think the general thing was that the comic fans were just assigned tables and then it was like, Wild West. Okay. You know, nobody ever looked after them. Okay. Nobody did anything. So nobody looked to see if they had their right table, if they had their chairs, mm -hmm. if their neighbor wasn't encroaching on their space, like okay. that they had their signage and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Nobody looked after local creators. Okay. And that's what I did. Okay. And that's what I still do. Okay. So I make sure that everybody has water and has snacks and... That was your job. That's what they brought you on to do. Yeah. Okay. And to make sure that I, I brought in all the local guests okay. as well. So. Okay. And at the time, in the comics community, the news of your departure from Paradise sort of reverberated as like this big, like, he's gone to the dark side sort yeah. of sort of feeling. Like, that seemed to be what it, what, what I, it was like. I had like. some people say they would never talk to me again yeah. and all that stuff. And I said, listen, you know me. By being there, there won't be hostile, hostile actions against whatever Paradise wants to do. Mm -hmm. So if you want to continue to support Paradise and you hate Fan Expo, then that's the case. Mm -hmm. But if you're a person who's in comics on a commercial level mm -hmm. and you enjoy comics and you whatever, then I'm there to make sure that you're looked after at Fan Expo. Mm -hmm. And you know me and you know from experience that I'm not going to screw you over. Yeah. That type of thing. 
it kind of worked out in, okay. in the long run in that that extent. Paradise sold their show to Wizard a couple of years later, and mm-hmm. Wizard tried to launch a Comic Con and stuff. But. And it wasn't successful. I remember going to the first one, and like there was nobody there. Well, you, you know what it, it was like. All of the other Paradise shows that we had done. Yeah. If you were there, you could great you could you could go talk to Gail Simone for uh, for a long time. Yeah. She was available and stuff like that, but. But people were playing kickball in the aisles in Artist Alley. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there was nothing to do. Like, it was the, the fans didn't come out for it. And I feel like it wasn't as personal as the Paradise show for some reason. No, uh, it, was a, it was like a corporate model coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was more corporate. And, but Lots of wrestlers. Did, did, yeah, it was, it was weird because it was like going through like a wax museum, but everybody was alive. Yeah. And like you could go right up to them because yeah. everyone's in their little, behind their little desks and mm-hmm. in their little part. And it was weird because it was like people that you knew that were, looked like wax figures, but they were people and they were actually alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was an interesting experience. It was, yeah. It, it was kind of sad for me because, and, and I, I knew Garib and, and um, Steve Seamus, the mm-hmm. owners from Wizard from doing sh- their shows for many years, uh, going to Chicago Comic Con and places like that. And they said, come down and check it out. And I said, all right, I'll come down and check it out. Sure. I, I, I don't have any issues. And like Fan Expo was like, we're not going to war with Wizard. We're mm-hmm. just not, it's no point. They already had really successful shows across the United States. Yeah. They had the magazine. Everybody knew Wizard. Yeah, uh, right? but we knew it was going to be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah you from, also knew it was going to be bad. You, you knew from what they were doing and the guests that they were bringing and stuff like that, that it was probably going to be bad news. Okay. And we just had this general feeling. So it was sort of like... I had mixed feelings because I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go down there and it's going to be kind of sad because this is my old show, now a wizard show, and it's not going to be quite right. It's not going to feel right. And and I did. I went down there and I like looked around and it just was kind of sad. Mm-hmm. So... What you're saying is like Paradise was never successful from like a from like a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. Neither was the Wizard. D- do you feel like the ultimate message was like maybe like two shows? Like like Toronto can't support two shows? I'd say that... There are reasons why the Paradise Show wasn't successful. Okay. That ultimately were about promotion and money and advertising. Okay. And that was not a lot. There wasn't a lot of it spent. Okay. So. Had they promoted it better, had they advertised it better, it might have gone Might have gotten a few more people in, yeah. Okay. And the same with the Wizard Show? Wizards show the same thing. They didn't spend any money on advertising. Mm-hmm. They spent it. They they use media PR companies to get spots on in newspapers and and on radio shows and things like that. But there was no actual physical advertising. There was no flyers distributed. A lot of they the didn't story, go into comic shops and yeah. There was no attempt to meet yeah. the community. And that's what when I mean that was the one thing though that I did with Paradise was. We went down to every comic shop and we talked to every comic shop owner. We mm. called them, we emailed them, we said, "Will you carry our flyers?" And you know, what issues do you have with our flyers and things like that? So, mm-hmm. but uh, still, the advertising and marketing wasn't there for Paradise either. No, it just was. We tried to advertise through comic shops and nowhere else. Oh, okay. Right. So there was uh, with the Schuster when the launch of the Schuster Awards, the Toronto Star came on board and advertised the Schuster Awards. Mm-hmm. That helped a little bit. So I would say like 2006 wasn't a terrible show. It was on the right upward movement. Okay. But 2007 was a huge drop. Okay. Yeah, backwards. Interesting. And we're going to leave it there. Uh, It's quite the uh, cliffhanger, I know. But uh, you guys are going to have to stay tuned for part two 
of our interview with Kevin Boyd. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 